Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Thank you very much. You can be seated. It's so good to be here with you. If you'd like to follow on the actual Bible, Acts chapter 8. Um, if not, that's okay. We're going to have slides that'll, that'll show you where we're going and say hello to all of our friends in um, campuses all over New South Wales. Uh, it's so good to, uh, to come in or maybe in your home. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of, of, of your day today. I hope Jesus gets bigger, the cross works better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller uh, for you today. Um, as Pastor Darren said, we do have our small resource table set up out there. We have our brand new series on the book of Revelation. And, uh, and we have a seven-part series on faith and uncertainty. And then a probably 30 to 35 partner on conversations where people were interviewing me. Uh, we do give all of that away. The only thing I would ask is that if you know you're going to get something, I would ask that you would do that quickly after this service uh, because I will have to pack it up. I won't be able to put it out uh, in the uh, afternoon service um, because uh, th- there's, a, there's a time limit on what time planes leave. I can't control that. So um, if you could, uh, if you could g- grab that out there tonight, if there's still space available, I'd encourage you to come on back uh, this afternoon. I've got a, a, a brand new message that I'll be sharing there as well. So I want to open, I want to open this uh, with, with an illustration. I owe this story to my friend Ben Staines from Wagga Wagga, uh, but then I want to take it someplace that, um, that, I, I, that I hope opens up because I want to come today not as a guest speaker, but as a member of the team here and, and talk about the values of this church and what makes this church what it's supposed to be. And if you're going to be a part of what this church is going forward and be happy about it, we're going to have to get on board with this. All right. So uh, the, the story is a, is, is a story from the uh, late 80s. It's about an American that came to Australia. Now I'm American. Americans are enamored with Australian culture. We love it. If you, if you, if you want to make a million dollars, just go to, go to America and open an Aussie themed anything. Uh, Americans have never uh, heard of Pavlova. So if you open a Pavlova shop, you're going to go broke. But if you call it the Great Aussie Pie, you, you will make a lot of money. Um, they, they love Australia because because of Crocodile Dundee and because of Outback Steakhouse. And so Americans, when they come to America, when they come to Australia for the first time, they always want to see the Outback. And I try to tell them, you don't want to see the Outback. If you fly to if you fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town, that is it, for for thousands of miles. That that is what it looks like. But they they don't listen, right? So they come out. And Americans are just enamored by the sheer size of things in Australia. Like my pastor is an old cattleman. Um, his property when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Um, to an American, that's the state of Connecticut. That is, that is a state. You can't imagine uh, something that size. So the American was like, man, how do you keep the cows from running away? It's so big. You can't fence up a whole, you can't fence up 70 miles by 30 miles. You'd have to have an act of Congress to build your wall, you know. Can't do that. What do you do? So the farmer said, well, what you do is, is you have a surveyor come in and you have them dig strategic wells in strategic parts of the paddocks and you create water sources. And if the the cows know where the water sources are, they won't vary too far from the water sources, they'll die. And he said, mate, mate. If you got proper wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to the Gospels. Jesus was transitioning the whole world from a fence-based paradigm of ministry to a well-based paradigm of ministry. In the Gospels, there were 613 fences 
613 rules of who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean. 613. Jesus moved it to two fence posts. It's a brilliant sort of paradigm. The book of Acts is about a group of people who were so profoundly moved by that that they outworked that. And here's the book of Acts in 15 seconds. People did amazing things. They got persecuted for doing amazing things. They overcame the persecution. They did more amazing things. They did, they got persecuted. They overcame it. They did more amazing things. A guy named Stephen gets murdered. Then they do more amazing things. And then they get persecuted. And then they do more amazing things. The book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 8, what's happening is, is they had been called to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other parts of the earth. By Acts 8, they're still in Jerusalem. No one's moved. And then a guy named Stephen gets murdered, and that motivates them to move. You can understand this. And there's a disciple named Philip, and he, he's, he's working in Samaria, and he has an amazing encounter with a guy just simply known as the Ethiopian eunuch. This is Acts chapter 8. When you open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happens? This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated on his chariot. And, he was see, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, just right there, this story makes no sense. You have an Ethiopian who rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. According to Google Maps, that's 3,853 kilometers. That's Brisbane to Perth. If you, if, if you rode a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turned right and went to Townsville, that's how far that is. That is a long way, and he's clutching the scroll of a prophet Isaiah. This makes no sense. It, it keeps going further. And the Spirit said to, to Philip, go over and join him on his chariot. So Philip went and joined him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He said, do you even understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture he's reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom should I ask you? Does the prophet speak about? About himself or about somebody else? Like his, his understanding is so elemental. He's not even sure if Isaiah's talking about himself or somebody else, but he's very interested. A, a, a God that's willing not to sit above creation judging it, but a God willing to enter into it, into the broken story and suffer with it. That, that's compelling. So he says, who's this guy talking about? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, oh, look, here's some water. What's keeping me from being baptized? In other words, is there any reason I can't join the Jesus movement, right? And, and of course, there was a reason. We'll talk about that in a second. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I have questions about this passage, and if you were paying attention as I read the passage, you should have questions too. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you in on the questions I ask. Like, number one, is there too much information in this passage? Why include the detail that he's a eunuch? Isn't that too much information? Do you actually need to know that? And, and, and if you're the eunuch, how do you feel about this? Why not like the Ethiopian guy? Or why not like bury the Ethiopian? No, it's just the Ethiopian eunuch. I could see him confronting Luke right now, like, really, bro? 
You told the whole world that I was missing part of my anatomy. You know Willard can't read over that and just let it go. He's going to have to tell the whole room and point it out, right? And the passage keeps pointing it out. What was it? Four or five times. The eunuch. The eunuch. Oh, by the way, did I mention he's a eunuch? Oh, by the way, hey, this guy, he's a eunuch, right? Why is that important? Number two, why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? That's far from where he lived. Why ride a horse there? And, and, and why, scroll, why the scroll of Isaiah? Out of all the scrolls available to him, that scroll? For what possible reason? And how does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing his anatomy? If I haven't mentioned it yet, he's a eunuch, right? And, and is there any reason why I can't be baptized? And of course, there is one. And I think one of the main questions that this passage is confronting us with is, are we going to be a fence-based or a well-based church? Because here's the thing. The tension in this passage comes from the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, this is what it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. In other words, no eunuchs will ever be welcomed by God, whether it was your fault or not. I know it's unfortunate, but you're not welcomed by God. It goes forward. It says worse things. And no one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. What? I was born in 1976. In my lifetime, I've heard a youth pastor use that passage to motivate teenagers to avoid premarital sex. And the idea was, is that if you mess up and get them pregnant, their kid will never be welcome in heaven. Now that is hermeneutical assassination of that passage. But those people left the church and then the church went, well, unfortunately they rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus that was presented to them. And that image should be rejected, right? And, and then, oh, it gets worse. And no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Now, Jesus' presence itself confronts this. First of all, there's more fences in the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23 than in Jesus' entire ministry. That's first. Second, if you check Jesus' genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. And there were a, a few questions about the circumstances revolving around his birth, right? So Jesus himself is confronting this passage. But here's what the fence said. And here's the problem. It's in the Bible. It's in our verses. Eunuchs, not welcomed by God. So when a eunuch, who happens to be a foreigner, by the way, this passage says no foreigners and no eunuchs will ever be welcomed by God. And so now you have a foreigner eunuch going, is there any reason why I can't join the Jesus movement? And Philip has to make a choice. And it's the same choice we have to make today. And that is this. Are we going to be a church that is obsessed with being right about singular verses? Or are we going to be a church that does something more profound and fulfills scripture by simply doing unto others as you would have them do unto you? Because that choice is critical. If Philip chooses to be right about Deuteronomy 23, he should have told the eunuch, this movement's not for you, it's in the rules. But he doesn't. He treats him how he would want to be treated. The question is why? Which leads me to Isaiah. So this guy rides a horse for 3,853 kilometers, clutching the scroll of Isaiah. Why? What about Isaiah was even compelling? Well, on the same scroll he was reading from, this is what Isaiah says. This is Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree. 
For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that's better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord to minister him to love the name of the Lord and to his servants who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted, in fact, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not just Jews. The sovereign Lord declares, who, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Can you see why this foreigner eunuch is so interested in the prophet Isaiah, a guy who's the first guy to say, actually, I know the rules say that foreigners aren't welcome. And I know, I know the rules say eunuchs aren't welcome. I'm a foreigner eunuch. And this guy seems to be indicating that there's a God that's not willing to sit above creation and judge it, but enter into the broken story and suffer with it. And he welcomes, who is this guy talking about? Because whoever this guy's talking about, I'm in. Now this passage has two main characters, the eunuch, who's a God-fear, but he would have been disqualified by all the rules. And then you have Philip, who's a, a devout member of one of the 12, who was from a devout Orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences. And then he met Jesus, and something changed about his outlook. See, and this thing has certain fruit to it as well. Today, 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christ followers. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of Ethiopians identify as Christ followers. Christ followers in Ethiopia are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia, right? The Ethiopian church traces its origins back to this one moment. This one, in other words, you never know when being brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse, you never know the far-reaching the far results that could have. And actually the whole book of Acts is that. The whole book of Acts is an entire book about being surprised by how generous God is with people who want it. Like, hey, remember there's this one time Peter's preaching a message and it says, as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit filled the Gentiles just as he had the Jews. And this surprised Peter. He's like, what? I didn't think God filled Gentiles. And remember the religious leaders, they're like, hey, Peter, explain yourself, bro, that God doesn't fill Gentiles. And remember Peter, he's like, I know, I know. Surprisingly enough, I agree with you. That's what I was taught my whole life too but I just saw God do it. And who am I to argue with whatever God's up to, right? Remember in Acts chapter four, it says that they were amazed that uneducated people were being used by God. Why is that amazing? Because they'd never seen that before. The book of Acts is an entire book about removing all the fences and embracing the well. Now, that is my best effort at explaining what happened. Now let's ask a more profound question. What's happening in us right now because of what happened? And what does this say about what kind of church we're trying to build in Tamworth and the, around, and the surrounding campuses that belong to this church? What is this saying to us? I think it's calling us to be a well-based paradigm instead of a fence-based paradigm. Now that is a platitude unless we have language. Like if I say, hey, we need to be a well-based place, not a fence-based place. No one in here is gonna go, no! We need more rules that make it harder to be a part. No, but if, if we don't have language for what that looks like, then it's just a platitude we can't apply. So let's, I'm gonna try to put some language around this. N number one, Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus seems to ask, are you thirsty? In, in, other, words, in other words, in a well-based paradigm, Christ followers should be obsessed with, do people want it? 
and less obsessed with, are they worth it? Are they worthy? Have you kept all the rules? Yeah, but the Bible says this. Yeah, but that's not the question. The, the question is, is do you want it? And if people want it, we can trust the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and in their life to do all the convicting and all the changing along the way. Our job is simply to facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes by asking, are you thirsty, not are you worthy? Let's, let's use today's language around that. A fence-based ministry is obsessed with, are you worthy? A well-based ministry is obsessed with, are you thirsty? Let, let's say it this way. A fence-based ministry is obsessed with sinning less. How do we sin less? You know what we do here? We call sin, sin. We don't water it down. We call sin, sin, and we do everything we can do to avoid it, which even in the best intention doesn't work. Sin management does not work. It's ineffective. A, a fence-based ministry is, is obsessed with sinning less. A well-based ministry is obsessed with loving more. And by loving more, you automatically sin less. Uh, let's say it this way. A fence-based ministry lives with the paradigm, everything needs to be fixed. Bring us all your problems, be open and honest about it, and we'll get in there with you and fix it, right? Which is frankly exhausting, correct? Right? A fence-based ministry says, we will need everything to be fixed. A well-based ministry says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create a culture with so little shaming that nothing needs to be hidden. And if nothing needs to be hidden, then, then the light will overcome the darkness automatically. See, a fence-based ministry is obsessed with, are you worthy? A well-based ministry is obsessed with, are you thirsty? A fence-based ministry is obsessed with sinning less. A well-based ministry is obsessed with loving more. A fence-based ministry is obsessed with fixing everything. A well-based ministry is obsessed with creating a culture where nothing has to be hidden anyway. It seems like the key is thirst. That if we're gonna build a church in Tamworth and, and around New South Wales, we want a thirsty church. Now, once again, that's a platitude unless we have language. So let's put some language around what thirst looks like. I, I think a lack of thirst equals a lack of teachability. If we lose our teachability, we've lost our thirst. Actually, the root word in Greek and in Hebrew for, for disciple is a student, someone who's teachable. Like whoever the smartest person in the world is about God, they haven't even scratched one-tenth of one percent of what God is. Like we, have an, we should have infinite questions and, and teachability. A thirsty church is a teachable church. I'd even say it this way. A lack of thirst equals a lack of humility. Uh, like this is just basic Christ-centered Christianity that we humble ourselves for the good of other people. That liberty is best expressed and experienced when submitted to the higher ethic of love. That if I'm free to eat food sacrificed to idols, but it makes you stumble, I shouldn't stop doing it, but I shouldn't do it in front of you and make you stumble. This is an obvious thing. So a thirsty church is a teachable church. It's a humble church. A lack of thirst is a lack of responsibility. In the Genesis poem, even before sin came into the picture, men and women got their meaning from interpreting their world through taking responsibility for their part in it. The opposite of that is blaming, which if you think back to the Genesis story, that's what everybody does. Everybody starts blaming everybody else and they lose their sense of meaning. A thirsty church is a teachable church. It's a humble church. It's a responsible church. And I would say it this way, a lack of thirst equals ambivalence. It's, it's, it's sort of like now that I'm in, how I live doesn't matter. See, a fence-based ministry is obsessed with conversion. We want you to be like us. If I could use an orange as an example. We want everybody to convert and be an orange, right? But once you're converted, you're in, that's, that's it. We'll just sit on our butt and wait to go to heaven now. God, boring. What? Right? A well-based church says, no, we celebrate your conversion. But we're, we're, we're also concerned about what kind of orange are you? 
Are you a sour orange, a ripe orange? Are you rotten in the middle? Like we want, we want to hook that orange to the water source so that you could be the best orange you could possibly be. A thirsty church is a teachable, humble, responsible, and a church passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. I'll go to a place like that. That's a place worth going to. I'd rather have a couple of hundred, I'd rather have a couple hundred thirsty people than pastor a church of 5,000 unteachable Christians. 5,000 unteachable Christians sounds like hell to me. But a, a church of a couple hundred thirsty people, teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world, that is worth going to. Let's say it this way. The overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. In other words, you don't need all the fences if you have a great water source. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. By Acts 15, they had dumbed it down to four. Food sacrificed to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. In other words, in a decade, they had such a powerful encounter with the risen Christ that they moved 613 rules to four. That is a really good effort with the goal of getting to two. Love God and love people. Treat people as you would want, treat others as you'd want to be treated. And in so doing, you can fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. And that is profound. If you don't ever hear anything else I say, hear this. If you want to ruin the Bible, read it statically. The Bible is not a static record of what God is. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what people thought God was, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ, right? In Deuteronomy 23, it says, no eunuch will ever be welcomed by God. Isaiah 56 is like, you know what? I think God's nicer than that. I think if eunuchs want in, they can be in, right? Matthew 19, Jesus said, actually, some people are made eunuchs by God. And if you can accept that, accept it. If you can't, you can't. By Acts 8, there's this foreigner eunuch going, can I be in? And Philip's going, yeah, why not? Let's baptize you. That is the nature of scripture. You, we want to read the whole narrative, not one plotted point. And we are called to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one plotted point in it. Let's say it this way. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? If we're well-based, we're gravitating to the center and the fences don't matter so much. Now, do fences matter? Yes, they do. And there are some fences that are utterly necessary to have a civilized society. Give you an example. Here's a great fence. Ready? Don't kill each other. It's a really good one, right? But I would bet no one in here killed anybody this week. I would also bet that the reason you didn't kill somebody is not because the Bible says don't kill. It's because you're not a killer. Like if you need the Bible to tell you not to kill, you might have missed the point, right? Like, okay, here's a good one. Don't take each other's things. That's a good one, right? And I would bet no one in here stole anything this week. I would also bet that the reason you didn't steal is not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a thief, right? Uh, okay, here's a good one. Don't sleep with each other's spouses. That's a bad plan, right? That's a really good idea. Don't sleep with other people's spouses. That is awesome. And I would bet that no one in here is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse. And if right now your heart's beating fast and you're thinking, don't go prophetic, change your life, right? <laughs> don't tell us all about it, just stop, okay? But I would also bet that the reason you're not sleeping with other people's spouses is not because the Bible says, it's because you don't wanna bring that kind of destruction on people you love, right? There's a more, like if you don't understand what I'm saying, here's what I want you to do. After the service day, I want you to take your spouse for coffee. I want you to hold them by the hand and I want you to say this, I love you with all my heart, but the only reason I'm not sleeping with everybody else is because the Bible forbids it. See how that works out, right? We all know there's a more profound way 
to live, right? Let's say it this way. Are we focused, are we more focused on direction instead of distance? A well-based ministry is focused on the direction of someone's shoulders. A fence-based ministry is focused on the distance from the well. We should be able to facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes towards God, regardless of how small that yes might seem to us. I, I was doing a, um, <clears throat> a volunteer's night for a church. It's a big church. Hundreds of people on a Tuesday night at a volunteers only meeting. You're supposed to be on team to be there. Amazing. And my job was to inspire and motivate people to keep being on team and tell them that what they do matters is important, right? And one of the things they did was they had story time. It was called God stories. They call it minute to win it. You, you had 60 seconds to tell your God story. And they had a security guard on a stopwatch. You better be done. They're going to take that mic from you, right? The last guy, I had to get up after this. The last guy gets up and says, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. Because when you want to kill a party, right? And I thought, in my mind, I immediately thought this guy <clears throat> had waited to last to get up and tell you, you know, hey, all you Christians so stupid. And you, like, full, you believe myths and stupid stuff, you know? Um, I thought he was going to do that. So I was working out a way to disarm it. I was just going to get up afterwards and go talk about how much I loved him and how much we celebrate that he's here. And that's how you, you de-escalate things. You don't argue, right? And so I was working that out, but then it turned. He said, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist, but I was a lonely atheist. And a friend of mine told me that you didn't mind if I belonged to your thing, whether I believed in God or not. So I chose to test it out. And true to his word, you guys don't care if I believe in God or not. You'll let me be a part here. By my second week here, you guys asked me to be a part of your host and hostess team. And I said, yes. He said, my job on Sunday morning is to be kind to people on the front door and show women where the bathroom is. And where do you take your kids, you know? He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. I thought, this is amazing. He said, so my God story is this. Because of your kindness, I'm choosing to step back tonight and consider God might be real. Well, the place went nuts. Why? Because that place is a well-based place. It can say, look at the direction of his shoulders. Now, a fence-based obsession can't do that. A fence-based would be, yeah, but has he prayed the prayer? What if he died? Wait, wait, what are you talking about? His shoulders are facing, he just said his next yes towards Jesus. What more could God possibly want from him than to keep responding? And our job is to facilitate and celebrate that guy's next yes, to cooperate with the work of the Spirit of God with him instead of trying to manipulate it. That's what our job is. Fences matter less when we're focused on moving towards the center. See, in old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build wells instead of fences? Because wells represent life and provision and prosperity and abundance. See, Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. He doesn't even bring up Deuteronomy 23. He doesn't say, well, there's this thing that says you're out. He says, no, no. Foreigner eunuchs, if you want it, are you thirsty? Let's do it. See, we don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. And if fences make it more difficult to get to the well, then they miss the point. All the fences of our life should corral us towards the center, not be a hurdle we must jump over to get to the center. Which leads me to Jesus. There's this festival every year in Jerusalem called the Feast of Tabernacles. T to be very elemental with it, here's what they do. 
for seven days, they live in tents. The reason they do that is to remind themselves that if God had not interjected himself into their story, that they would still be homeless refugee slaves, right? And they, they, and they proclaim certain prayers in loud voices. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 26. My father was a wandering Aramean. My father was a homeless refugee slave. In other words, if God had not interjected himself into my story, I would still be a homeless refugee slave. And they remind themselves of that by living in tents for seven days. The reason is, is because if we ever lose sight of what, where we would be had God not interjected in our story, then we'll lose sight of our responsibility to be a part of their story. So Jesus is at this feast. It's the last and greatest day of it. And he says something on the temple steps. It's unbelievable. This is John chapter seven. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come after me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, you know the Holy Spirit, you know the, the, the full presence of God that you've been taught your whole life is behind that curtain and it's only available to certain people who go through certain fences, especially three of them, outer court, inner court. You know that? You know, you know, the, you know the full presence of God that's only been available to the elite? Uh-uh. I'm offering it to everybody and here's the criteria. Do you want it? Let anyone who's thirsty come after me and they'll have a full measure of the Spirit of God. Can you imagine the Q&A at that one? Oh, uh, what if they're eunuchs? Yes, but there's a Bible verse. I know, but we, yeah, yeah, God's nicer than that. Yeah. What if they're Moabites? Yeah, check your genealogy. I'm 128th Moabite. Yep, yeah, no worries. Yeah, Ammonites? Yep, Sidonites? Yep. We can go through all 613 or you can just trust me. If somebody wants it, they can have a full measure of God. Jesus moved the whole thing from an are you worthy thought to an are you thirsty thought. And that is motivating. And to be a part of where this church is going, you're gonna have to get on board with that. This is a well-based place, not a fence-based place, which means we're obsessed with do people want it, not are they worthy. We're obsessed with loving more, not sending less. We're obsessed with creating a culture where nothing has to be hidden instead of everything has to be fixed. We're obsessed with direction, not distance. We're a teachable place a humble place, a responsible place, and a place passionate about the infinite possibilities to bring heaven to our world. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. The right way to wrestle, the best way to wrestle is with questions. So here's a couple questions I want us to wrestle with. One, when's the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? Like God obviously did something and I didn't think God did that, but I saw it and I can't argue with it. Have I honored a right, wrong, in, out, clean, unclean paradigm over a hungry, thirsty one? Am I blaming anybody right now? Like when I look at my life, am I blaming my dad, my mom, the previous generation, my neighbors, the government? Am I blaming God or am I taking responsibility for where I am? Am I teachable? Have I come to the conclusion that on my best day, I haven't scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is, and I have an eternity of exploring that? Or do I shut down conversations if they don't start where I am? Uh, number five, am I flexible? If God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who might argue? And I think the biggest question that this passage forces us to wrestle with is this. Are we going to build deeper wells or higher fences? Are we going to make it harder for people to be a part? Or are we just going to ask one question? Do you want it? But I'm an atheist. Yeah, I don't, I don't care about that. Do you want it? Are you thirsty? Yeah, but I'm not sure about where I fit with that. Yeah, that's okay. Do you want it? 
If, if you're thirsty, then we're willing to facilitate and celebrate whatever your next yes is towards the center. As long as the direction of your shoulders go towards the center, we're here to facilitate and celebrate whatever that next yes is. And in that, we can build a church. It's not only worth going to, it'll be the key to changing whole communities. I hope Jesus got bigger for you today, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. For all of you watching in the campuses and perhaps in your homes, thanks for letting me be a part of your day. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thank you so much, Shane. Oh, we're grateful for you. Grateful that you're a part of the family here. Thank you. And uh, you've definitely enlightened us um, over the years. But um, again, this morning, I heard that sermon in the 8.30. I loved it even more just then. So, yeah, thank you so much. I've got a question um, to kick us off. And if you've got a question, you can ask Shane Willard anything and uh, he will have an answer for it. I, I, I feel like he will. Um, and uh, even, you know, um, Questions of Shane could be, how do I explain this to my friend? I've found him a wealth of information on that. Um, but how do we cultivate thirst, Shane, in our own lives? Well, you have to cultivate thirst. Let's go through the four elements of it. Um, I think it starts with an honest audit of, am I teachable? In other words, it, if I was to define my life, am I living in a world of open possibilities or closed ones? Because if we, if we live in a closed universe, then everything's predetermined and we can't, no matter what we do, we're not gonna change anything anyway. And that leads to a lack of teachability. And so I think the first question is, is to develop, de to develop a conviction that I have an eternity of learning. Um, I try to read really widely. Um, I read people I don't agree with after I'm done with the book, which is great. Like if you, if, if you have to agree with everything someone says to learn from them, I think that misses a huge point too. How would you ever grow? And so I think we have to, to, to cultivate a, a hunger for growth and, and journey instead of destination to realize that all meaning, all meaning in life, no matter what it is, is derived from the object cause, not the object desire. And that, that's true of anything. Like what's more fun, shopping for a new truck or actually buying it? What's more fun to dream about it and shop and like what, what's what's more fun dreaming with your spouse about what your next home might look like or actually signing a dotted line what's well, it's more fun the the process like what's more fun getting to the end of knowing your spouse or the process by which you get to know them like the best marriage in this room is not shared by somebody that goes you know what we've been together 35 years i know everything about them there's nothing else left to know no the best marriage in this room is like we've been together 35 years i still don't have a flipping clue but i'm loving every minute of it right? <clears throat> And so, and I think that's the, I think that that's the same thing is true with God, that, that, that all of our meaning around our journey with God is found in the process and the journey by which we journey with God, not getting to the end of the journey with God. I, I think that's essentially what makes Jesus so special, um, that meaning in life is determined as a function of the relationship between object desire and object cause. So object desire is that which you want. So to be elemental with it when you're three, the chocolates. I want to eat all the chocolates. That's your object desire. The object cause is anything that stands in the way of what you want. So to use the same example, a three-year-old says, I want to eat all the chocolates. Your mom says, you can't eat all the chocolates. The chocolates are the object desire. 
the mother is the object cause. The, the mother represents the struggle by which you have to go through to get what you want. The same thing with a truck. A truck is by object desire. The object cause is all the sacrifices you have to make to be able to afford the truck. And when you finally get the truck, the meaning will be interpreted by the story by which you sacrifice to get the truck. It's not sitting in the truck itself. It's the memories of everything you went through to get to that. Yeah. Um, th this is why, it's a little off topic, but it's meaningful. So this is, this is why I fear that Christianity has stuffed heaven up. How do you stuff heaven up? Here's what you do. You tell the whole world that heaven is a place we go when we die, where we get everything we want all the time with no process at all. Well, that sounds like hell. Like even the Twilight Zone figured this out. In, in the mid-30s, there was a Twilight Zone episode about a guy named Robert Valentine. Robert Valentine was a wicked man, a criminal. He dies in an accident, and he wakes up in the afterlife. And he doesn't know he's in the afterlife because it looks the same. Uh, and, and there's an angel there named Pip. And Pip says, hello, Robert. I'm here to show you around the afterlife. And, and, and so Robert just reverts to who he is and tries to rob Pip. He says, give me all your money, Pip. And Pip says, you can have all my money. There's an infinite amount of money. I don't have to worry about that here, right? And so Robert's like, what is this? He says, let me take you to your house, Robert. And so he takes him to this mansion, you know, and, and this huge thing. And he says, is that your house, Pip? Pip says, no, it's your house. And by the way, in that drawer is 3 million US dollars, which in 1935 was like a bajillion. He says, Robert, what do you like to do? And Robert says, I like to gamble. Where's the afterlife casino, you know? And he goes, I'll take you to the afterlife casino. So he goes and, and, and you know, you would think you'd put a, a safety net back. No, no, he takes all three million and puts it on one hand of blackjack. And he wins six million, 12 million, 24 million, 48 million. He can't lose. It's unbelievable this guy can't lose. This is, amazing. This is the most amazing place on earth. Fast forward six weeks later, and Robert Valentine is losing his mind from boredom mm. because he's just getting everything he wanted. And he says to Pip, Pip, make it stop. I was a wicked man on the earth. What did I do to deserve heaven? Uh, well. And Pip says, heaven? Who told you this was heaven? This is hell. Yeah. And it says, so Robert Valentine was condemned by God to an eternity of getting everything he always wanted. And that's how you do it. You stuff meaning up by removing the object cause. And by the way, that's what makes Jesus special. In Christianity, the object desires the presence of God. This is the thing that, that we desire. We want the presence of God. The object cause is Jesus. Jesus says, you can't get to that except through me. But this is what flips the script with Christianity. Christianity flips the script and says, actually, the fullness of the presence of God is Jesus. So Christianity is the one religion on earth that takes your object desire and your object cause and wraps it into one person, which creates an eternity of meaningful exploration. And that eternity of meaningful exploration should create incredible hunger and thirst for that next step, that next yes. Beautiful. Um, they're flying in, uh, the questions. Um, one, of these, one of these is from Amaral. I uh, love this. It says, I was blessed with the message today. I admire your sound mind and knowledge of God's word. Please tell us how you met Jesus. Um, so I grew, up, uh, I grew up in the church, um, um, but I grew up at a church where you lost your salvation every time you sinned. So the reason those old school Pentecostal holiness churches in the South 
had 5,000 salvations a year, but they only had 40 people in church is because you had to get saved every day. And so, it, it's so, it's so I, I went to a Baptist school, though, where you couldn't lose your salvation, but God got ticked off at you. So it was sort of a, my story is kind of a, a, a weird amalgamation of that. And somewhere, somewhere in that journey, God always meets people where they think he is. And then he engages that story and starts getting in the middle of that broken story and making a more beautiful narrative. And somewhere in the middle of that, I, I was with one of my teachers named Miss Woodruff. And something about that day saying yes to Jesus stuck with me. But it stuck with me in a way where I realized it wasn't a static decision and it wasn't that God ever left me. So it's not like a losing your salvation thing, but it is the walk with God is a dynamic, progressive, moving narrative by which I like the way Paul said it, just as you received Christ, so continue to walk in him. So I received Christ by responding to God and I walk in him by continually responding, by, by continually saying my next yes as well. And that, would, that trajectory would go into eternity. And so that's a a quick answer to that. But. That's beautiful. Yeah, Chrissy, people like Chrissy and myself who got saved every youth camp, we can identify of with that. Of course we did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love this line, the overuse of fences is not necessary if there is a well-stocked well. Correct. Um, beautiful. Can you talk to us about, because obviously, you know, if we're talking about a church that is a, a well, a well-stocked well, then um, it could be, we could fall into the temptation of thinking, well, Bron and Daz have got to preach better. Mikey's got to do better on media. The worship team have to be better if we're going to be a, a yes. well. Yeah. That's obviously making it too small. How yeah. do we as a church be that well that you're talking about? Well, it starts with a conviction to, to be like God in the sense that God always is humble enough to meet people where they think he is. Like God met a guy that thought you had to kill children to please him. And he didn't change. He said, okay, you think you need to kill kids? Kill kids, that's fine. And then he engaged that broken story and said, I got a better idea. Instead of killing kids, let's kill animals. Would that be better? And Abraham's like, that's better. That's a way better story. Years later, there's this guy named Moses who grew up believing God was a fire. He thought God was the sun. And so how does God meet Moses? He meets him as a fire, as a burning bush, but a different kind of fire. The Moses, the God Moses grew up with was a consuming fire, but this God's not even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. I love the way T.S. Eliot wrote it. We only sustain, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire, that you will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire, the sun God raw, or by faith, you will embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh, who although he will perfect you, he will never harm you for the bush was not consumed. And so what... And so that's, that is articulate. That is, that is what happens when Shakespeare and the Hulk have a kid, right? <laughs> then years later, there's this guy named Caesar. And Caesar said, I'm not only a man, I'm God in flesh. And God doesn't panic. God doesn't go, oh, no, this guy claiming to be God, right? He goes, oh, the whole world thinks God can be in a man. I'll be in a man. And I'll turn it upside down as to what if God was actually a man would look like. That's better. And I think... This is what disheartens me about how Christians engage politics. Like, like particularly American Christians. Like, just, just, a, just a quick history of God, okay? He overcame the watery chaos in the beginning. He overcame the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, the, 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 the British Empire. I think he can handle either Donald Trump or Joe Biden, yeah. right? <laughs> 
Like God's not in heaven going, oh my me, what am I gonna do, right? He, it's like, wait a minute, have you, have, you not, have you not learned anything over the course of the narrative? And I think what happens is, is once we fence God into it has to be this or that, we lose sight of the fact that God's been engaging broken narrative since the beginning, making it a better story. And when we commit to that, no matter how broken a person's narrative is, if they want it, then we will engage that broken narrative to cooperate with the work of the Spirit of God by, by knowing as long as they keep saying their next yes, God will get them where they're going. Well, then it removes all the comparison. It removes all the competition. You don't, you don't have to preach better, sing better. Now, that doesn't remove excellence. We should be excellent, not because God needs excellence, but because it removes distractions for people. But the, but, but the truth of it is, is that, is that a, a well-based ministry it's just one that asks, are you thirsty and facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes. Brilliant. You know, we're going to keep going in the room, um, but I'm aware of the time. Uh, and, and, and you know, you're used to our services that they finish on time. So if you need to go, if you've got an appointment, um, please, by all means, go. We're going to keep going. And uh, if you're online, we release you as well. Um, if you're on, in the campuses, but we're actually going to keep going if you want to stay and hang around. Um, if you want to go, there's a resource table out the back before you go. So please uh, get something for a loved one. It's going to be brilliant and it's going to help people in um, China. And where else, Shane? Cape Town. Cape Town. Mm. Can you tell us just quickly about the work that you do there? So we have, we have a, a home for mentally handicapped children in China, three, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats. So anything that you buy um, actually goes to that. that. Yep. Okay, we're going to keep asking questions, um, but bless you as you go. How do you read the Bible in light of it being progressive without reading it all in one go? Well, I think, you, you, first of all, you have to start with the idea that the closer people got to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ, the better their revelation of God got. And that should make sense. Like, like whose revelation of God was more complete, Abraham's or Moses's? Well, Moses's by far. It wasn't the final revelation of God, but it was a giant leap in the right direction. And, and then, of course, you know, you got guys like Micah, who basically said a lot of what Moses said missed it. So Micah said, you've been told your whole life you have to sacrifice to please God. What kind of God delights in killing birds to be okay with you? Just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, it'll be okay. Now that was a revolutionary thought, but they, they ended up killing Micah because he was not biblical. Um, but the Bible in Ezekiel said, actually generational curses aren't a thing. Every generation stands on their own two feet before God and the ones who choose life and light get life and light and the ones who don't get death and darkness. I mean, I, you know, how fair is that? Isaiah is like, hey, I know it says eunuchs aren't welcome, but if a eunuch wants it, why would God, right? And so what you have is once you realize that there is a, if you read something early, our first question should be, where did this go in the narrative of the story leading to the risen Christ? And that makes things more beautiful. That makes scriptures more beautiful, not less beautiful. It makes scriptures matter more. Um, it, it makes scriptures more relevant, not less relevant. Um, otherwise, you get in this trap of, well, why would I ever read that? Well, the reason you read that is because the backdrop of that makes Christ even more compelling. Because without that, Christ matters less. But with that, Christ matters more because he was shifting the whole world. And so you, you just sort of start that way. Um, sin management doesn't work. No. Can you expand on that? Uh, yes, because whatever you focus on gets bigger. So if I say, 
I'll give $500 to anyone who can make it to the end of this without thinking of a pink elephant. Now, come on, now, don't think of a pink, hey, stop, stop thinking of a pink elephant. Now, you, you, don't, you don't think of a pink elephant. Well, by nature of telling you not to do something, you're gonna wanna do it. It's gonna get filled in your mind. Actually, if you go back to the Genesis poem, forbiddance is the power of the obsession of the problem, right? So the Genesis poem is, you got two people in a garden and the central antagonist is a piece of fruit. Well, that's boring. That's like, that's like actually not a good story. Oh, let me tell you a story. There's two people in a garden and there's this piece of food. Now, what makes that story awesome? What makes it compelling? Is, is, it, is you forbid the fruit. Now, as soon as you forbid it, there's this obsessive wonderment of why is that forbidden? What am I missing? And, th and that was the lie of the snake. The snake says, the reason it's forbidden is because this fruit is the key to you lacking the lack. You know you lack something, and the key to that lack going away is this fruit. And the reason that God forbidden it was because if you knew you could have this to lack the lack, then you wouldn't need God. And that's terrifying to God, right? And so, philosophically, it's called the lie of the sacred object. The lie of the sacred object is anytime we believe that something outside of us, if we just got it, we would have less lack. And even if it's a good thing, it's a lie. So like, oh, if I just had that new car, I'd feel better. No, you won't. No, you won't. A good car, a new car is a good thing to have. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it, right? Or if I, oh, you know what? I feel so much lack. If I just made more money, I'd feel less lack. No, you won't. No, you won't. And I want you to get a raise. I do. But if you're not enough without it, you're not going to be enough with it. You'll just be a richer version of your discontented self. Or, oh, if I just lost 15 kilos, you know what? I feel so much lack about myself. I think it's because I'm overweight. If I lost 15 kilos, I'd feel better about myself. No, you won't. And let me be clear. If you need to lose 15 kilos, please do. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. You'll just be a 15 kilo lighter version of your discontented self. The, the sacred objects don't work. And, and what gives the sacred object power is forbiddance. And so actually, Paul's strategy for behavior modification was remove all the forbiddance. I'll make all things permissible, and hopefully that'll be what empowers you to choose to do that which is profitable. Um, and what if, we, what, what if we remove the forbiddance? We would remove the power that underpins the sin. And actually, if I could go two places with that. One is the lie of the sacred object was the sin of the garden. It's the belief that if I just got that thing outside of me, I'd feel less lack. And they bought into it. And did it work? No. Now, you would think they would go, okay, we repent for our need of the sacred object. But they don't. They create another sacred object called the law. If you, you, know, if you keep all 613 rules, you'll feel better. No, you won't. You'll just be aware of the one place you missed it. It's a lie. Now, instead of repenting of that, they just created another sacred object, the Holy of Holies. They said, the key to your life is the presence of God. Where does that live? Behind that curtain. Now, that is not interesting until you forbid it. The key to you not feeling lack is behind that curtain. Unfortunately, if you go in there, you'll die, right? Of course, there's no record of that ever happening. 
Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the place, stole the furniture, didn't die. Tiglath-Pileser ransacked the place, stole the furniture, didn't die. Antiochus Epiphanes in 157 BC put pig's blood in the Holy of Holies and didn't die. 63 BC, Pompey Magnus said, I'm walking into the Holy of Holies and if your God kills me, all of Rome will convert to Judaism. Pompey Magnus in 63 BC walked into the Holy of Holies and didn't die. They kept being confronted with the idea that what you're calling a sacred object is not where it is. And I, I think that's why when Jesus died, all four gospels, first thing they say is the temple veil tore. In other words, where you think God is, he's not there. He's actually in all of us. That Jesus did not die so we could pursue wholeness. Jesus died to free us from the pursuit of wholeness. If, a, if, 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 an, if an irreligious person said, why does Jesus matter? I would say Jesus matters because Jesus frees us from the pursuit of the sacred object. And can you imagine your life where you finally believed that any pursuit of something outside of me is futile in terms of making me feel less lack? That the wholest I'll ever feel is when I'm united with the spirit of God that is inhabiting all things. That would be freedom. And so that's why sin management doesn't work because it relies on forbiddance and forbiddance only makes us sin more. So like my dad, I don't know if he figured this out or if he just lucked out, but my dad understood the power of forbiddance. And so when I was a teenager, he just removed the forbiddance. He was like, do your friends ever sneak off and drink? I was like, some of them. He said, are you curious about that? Like a little bit. He said, good. He said, anytime you want to drink, you can drink, but you have to drink with me and you won't be in trouble. He asked me the same thing about pornography. He was like, do your friends sneak off and look at porn? This is back when you had to like look at porn, like in the paper form, you know? I said, sometimes. He said, are you, are you curious about pornography? I said, a little bit. Like, it, it is curious, you know? And he goes, okay, anytime you want to watch porn, I'll buy it for you, but we have to watch it together, right? Um, and, and because he removed the allure of the forgiveness, uh, for the forbiddance, you know, I, I never looked at porn one time in my whole teenage years. I never drank one drop of it, it but, but he was, it was just out in the open. Nothing had to be hidden. And by removing the forbiddance, it removed the obsession with the allure of it. But that, and I'm not saying that would work for everybody, but, but I would say that sin management doesn't work because it relies on forbiddance and forbiddance is the force that makes the darkness obsessive. And, um, and that Jesus died to set us free from the pursuit of the sacred object. And, and forbiddance makes sacred objects alluring. Wow. Um, I'm not familiar with this passage, um, but you might be. So, oh, like, I can't recall it immediately to mind. How do we reconcile Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 17 to 20? Do you, I didn't know with, um, with the message that has just been preached. I don't know. I don't know. The, I yeah, don't know great. it off the top of my Excellent. head. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> um, me neither. Um, I've got a question about the hidden. I mean, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. But I'm not sure exactly what those three verses. Yeah, yeah. Three huge. verses. Yeah, you don't yeah. know that you can't just. Uh, me yeah, neither. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up so that we've got context. Yeah. But um, this is like nothing needs to be hidden. Mm. This is a like even when you're saying pornography, like yep. immediately I'm like, oh, oh. Right. A and so how do we cultivate a an environment where nothing, like AA have done it, where yes. they, they confess immediately. Um, but but how, how do we cultivate an environment in here like that? Well, I think you start in your households. Like if, you, if you're concerned about your children's purity, 
just talk about talk about sexuality openly and and make it an unforbidden thing. Yeah. Otherwise, that forbiddance will make them ask people who know less about it, namely their 13-year-old friends. You don't want your 13-year-old learning about sexuality from 13-year-olds. That would be it's stupid. It's true. Right? But if you, and the way to do that is to remove any fear of shaming because there's something in people that knows that part of life is, should, there's something about it that should be hidden. And, and amen, it's not a great spectator sport, but the, but the, this, that's, that's partly a good thing. But, but if you, you know, if, if you bring it out, like my, my, um, this sounds like I'm making a joke, but my master's degree is in sex, right? So that's true. Um, so I'm a theoretical expert, right? In theory, no one's better than me, than me at that, right? Yeah. Now, now in practice, pretty much crap, but in theory, no one's better. And, and I can, and I can tell you that the more hidden and alluring you make it, the more your teenagers will struggle with it. Um, and the more out in the open and Hey, you have no fear of discussing things with me. Um, the, the less of a problem it is. And, um, and so, um, people who make it forbidden and mysterious only make it more curious. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Matthew 5, 17 to 20, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them yeah. for a truly, I tell you until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen by yeah, yeah, yeah. any means. Except yeah. So, so the issue with that passage is, is that words matter less than how we picture words working. And so in, in the Greek there and in the Hebrew version of Matthew, the idea is, is that it's going to sound like I'm saying none of this matters, but I'm actually showing you what the whole thing looks like lived out. And then he goes on to define it later by saying, you can, you can memorize and do all 613 if you want to choose that life. That's fine. Or you can do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in so doing, you fulfilled scripture. And so it's a Jesus defined fulfilling the law as doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and, and so that's my question. My question isn't, can we find a verse that forbids that behavior? You can always find that. I mean, there's 25 forbiddances of gluttony in the Bible. Don't look at me. 25 verses in the Bible that forbid habitual overeating too many calories than your body needs. Now I can find a verse that tells me how to treat gluttons, which is to forbid their behavior, or I can treat them how I would want to be treated if I were them. And in so doing, I fulfilled the law instead of being right about one verse in it. So, so the, the, the reconciliation of that passage, actually that passage, I probably should add that passage to the message because it's actually what Jesus was talking about. Like, like I've come to fulfill it. Well, well if I say, I haven't come to abolish those things, but I've come to fulfill it. Your natural question is, how do you do that? And, and then he, he later goes, if you just treat others as you would want to be treated, you've fulfilled the, the law and the prophets. In other words, you can memorize the whole Old Testament and do it, or you can do those two things and you fulfilled it, yeah. which is just infinitely better. Yeah. And as a habitual overeater, I thank you for fulfilling it rather than... <laughs> well, I had it. to pick one that was the most applicable to the Western world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, when does not shaming become permissive culture? So we, we don't want to shame people because yeah. they are where they are, they're on their journey. Yeah. But at what point does that become a permissive culture? Well, so, so shame, by definition, is any time we make people fear they don't belong because of something about them. Wow. 
permission says inside our organization everything goes and that can't be yeah <clears throat> that's uh one of the hebrew definitions of hell is a boundaryless place mm. in other words if you don't know what you're saying yes to you have no idea what you're saying no to yeah. that every no that matters is driven by some yes mm. no in and of itself is never powerful enough to change anything but a, but a no that is a clearly attached to a yes. So to be a yes person on forgiveness means I must say no to grudges. So, so if we're going to be a yes person to forgiveness, which is a well thing, then we have to say no to grudges. So being shame-free is actually critical to being non-permissive because shame-free says if we bring all of our stuff into the light, then the darkness loses its power. And then the things we must say no to becomes clear. But it's not no in order to earn something. It's no in order to facilitate the yes we said. So to, to be a yes person on financial peace means no to frivolous spending. To be a yes person on fitness means saying no to overeating. So, so you can, in other words, you don't have to plan to fail. You just have to live with no intention and failure will be a normal part of what happens. Like you don't have to intend to be a bad dad. You just have to have no intention on being a good dad and you won't know what to say no to. The, the wisdom literature says, where there's no vision, people perish. In Hebrew, it says, where there's no vision, people cast off restraint. In other words, where there's no clear yes, people have no idea what to say no to. Hmm. Um, Shane, you talked about meeting people where they're at um, and engaging in, in that story. Um, someone here's written like the for example, the rainbow serpent found in um, Indigenous history. Um, oh, yeah. um, so <clears throat> how do you have a conversation respectfully with someone who's older or in authority? Do you, do you even have that conversation? Would it... it would depend on if they're open to it. But I don't, and I don't know Indigenous history, so I don't know the rainbow serpent. But the, the, serpent, the serpent on a pole is a common imagery based on numbers. So what happened was, was there was a group of people who God reached out to and then they grumbled about it. And Moses is so irritated with their grumbling. He's like, you wicked generation. God's done all this. You're still grumbling? My God, right? <laughs> and then snakes come out and start biting them. Now, this is likely a coincidence. They were in the wilderness where there's snakes. But Moses, in his irritation, interprets that as God sending snakes to get these people, right? And that's reasonable. But then when he prays to God, God says, no, 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 no. I'm a healer. I'm a life giver, not a death dealer. Put a snake on a pole, and all people have to do is look to that, and for free, they'll be healed. So Moses does that. Now, by Second Kings, though, it's just in us to reframe things in a way that's ungracious and profiteering. By 2 Kings, Josiah had to tear down the snake on a pole that was put up by Moses because they had renamed it Nehushtan and were making people give offerings to it for healing. So what God started out as a free healing, they started charging people and renamed it Nehushtan, right? And so Josiah is like, we're tearing that down. Well, then that became then a primary image of like the medical field and everything else. So you can largely find images in story around those things and if you can find that common ground you can then move everything's about finding common ground first and then moving forward starting from there like what what philip did with the eunuch that's where you're starting with that's where i'll start with you yeah, yeah. and then let's move forward yeah. so if i was talking to an indigenous person i would go tell me the story i don't know the story hmm. 
Now I'm curious. And so they tell me the story and I go, oh, you know, there's a similar story like that in numbers, right? And then you can, and you could talk about the tendency of human beings to trade the grace of God for something that costs something in profiteers. And that's true of all of us. Yeah, wow, that's great. Um, a few of the questions are around the same thing, so we've kind of put them together, but um, maybe, maybe this will be the last one. Okay. What do I do when people are confused about what I believe and how do I not sound like a nutcase? Well, I think part of sounding like not a nutcase is tell yourself your story first and ask, does that sound like a nutcase? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. If you, sound, if you sound like a nutcase to you, you definitely sound like a nutcase to everybody else. And... And I think a lot of, a lot of Christian nutcase them. I know, it's hilarious. I know, that's, that's really funny. Um, I think a lot of Christian nutcase them comes a lot from genre confusion. So they don't realize that a lot of the Bible is fiction. And that doesn't mean it's less true. It just means some of the most profound truths ever told are told in poetic forms. So like if I, if I took you to Israel and you asked the history guide, hey, where's the farm where the parable of the prodigal son literally happened? Well, they would look at you and go, what? That was a made up story. And, and we know that parables, although fiction, have profound truths in them. That, and so I love the way N.T. Wright says it. He says, the only way to read the Bible is to realize it's all true and some of it actually happened. And, and so a lot of our nutcasedom comes from reading a poem as if it's a science book. No, it's not a science book, it's a poem. Or reading a history as if it's a poem, or reading a poem as if it's history. And so if we can just discipline ourselves to ask before we talk about particularly scripture, what genre was the original author writing there? Then we can make ourselves a lot more, a lot more tenable. And, and that's important that the people who control the narrative around scripture are speaking of scripture in the most meaningful way possible. Yeah. Um, Shane, I'd love you to just finish on um, what you see if we get this well-watered, um, well well-dug church right. Yeah. What, what that could look like for the city of Tamworth, for the regions in New South Wales. I think what would happen is we would lose all of our language around an existent God. That God does not exist. And I'm not mad at you if you say God exists, because I know what you mean. You mean God is real. But the, the word existence means something has to be an object outside of me. So this microphone exists, and I can figure out how to use it. It'll serve me well. That, that is not the Christian idea of God at all. Actually, Christians in the first century were killed by Rome for atheism because they said God does not exist. There's not an image you can go look at. There's not a temple you, that God insists, that there's one God holding the whole thing together. And if there's one God holding the whole thing together, then you can't treat women worse than men. You can't treat blacks worse than whites. You can't treat rich better than poor because there's one God holding the whole thing together. And if God insists then we can affirm what Paul affirmed in Ephesians 1, that the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. And once we affirm that, then we, it's not a matter of who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. It's a matter of where is God at work in that person and how can I facilitate and celebrate their next yes in cooperation with what that is? Because the idea that, you know, we've heard people say, Oh, you know, we're going to bring Jesus to Tamworth. No, Jesus was at work in Tamworth before we ever got here. Our job is to identify that and help people name it. And once that happens, you have a compelling thing where there's no hierarchy. Yeah. And that's the best. Yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. Can you bless us before we go? So, Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. And we ask, what would we look like if you were fully in the middle of us now because you are? Yes. May we be aware of the fullness of God and be set free from the pursuit of the sacred object. Yeah. Amen. 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 Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.